Hello, everyone. Welcome to Health Unchained. If you are listening to this episode, I want to thank you for tuning in. There is a strong demand for change in our society, and I know there are dozens of other things you could be doing with your time. So I appreciate all my listeners, and I will continue to provide valuable researched blockchain healthcare content to the global community. In general, on this podcast, I try not to be political, but the last few weeks have reminded me of the atrocities that black people face from a cruel criminal justice system. The events that led up to George Floyd's death are a result of systemic bias against people of color in America. Police brutality is the result of a long history of violence against minorities throughout most of the world. We need to value all human life and we need to show mercy instead of enforcing our brute authority. The unnecessary protectionism of the police unions is a reflection of broken trust and our inability to cooperate as a society. So for the next 30 seconds, with your participation, we'll have a moment of silence to acknowledge the mistreatment of black people by police and think of ways we can be a positive force. Over time, I truly believe blockchain technology will enable a new layer of trust between citizens and law enforcement. Racial and ethnic minorities also experience low-quality health care and less access to medical care. If we are to grow and evolve as a united community, we need to address these disparities head-on. We need to solve economic injustice and stop racism in our society. How we get there will be up to us. It won't be easy, and it won't be without struggle, but it'll be well worth our time, our effort, and our attention. If you are still on the sidelines about these issues, educate yourself by researching anti-racism, which is the active process of identifying and eliminating racism by changing systems, organizational structures, and practices. Thank you all again for listening, and please don't stay silent, because momentum is what creates change. And we are long overdue for this change in the United States and the world. Next time an officer hears, I can't breathe, we should expect them to help, not hurt. And now for today's episode, we have guest Sam Schutte, who is the founder and CEO of Unstoppable Software Incorporated, a custom software development company that helps clients build systems to automate workflow and implement digital transformation. As CEO, Sam has guided Unstoppable's focus on two main client verticals, healthcare and industrial manufacturing, which has led to unique insights on software usability and process improvement for users. We talked about the challenges his clients face in an ever-changing technology landscape. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Sam Schutte, CEO of Unstoppable Software. Unstoppable Software is a software development consulting company who has clients in multiple industries, including healthcare. Sam also hosts his own podcast called Unstoppable Talk, so I'm super excited to be chatting with him today. Uh, We'll be talking about how various healthcare organizations are adopting new technologies and why they are so hesitant to start tinkering with blockchain. Sam, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ray. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, we can first start off with a little bit about your background. So if you can kind of share with the audience, you know, who you are and uh, a little bit about your your company. Yeah, absolutely. So I started out uh, life, you know, my professional career as a software developer. So I got my computer science degree from University of Pittsburgh. Uh, 
I didn't go there for thinking I was would be a programmer. I thought I'd be a doctor, which is sort of interesting how my career has played out. Uh, and it just so happened that Pitt only Pitt not only has a great medical school, but also has a great computer science program. So I lucked out, uh, got out, and actually my very first job out of college was for a medical record uh, EMR vendor, which uh, at the time was called Land Vision. Uh, later became known as um, Streamline Health, publicly traded medical records company. Uh, and so, and I kind of stayed around healthcare and records for a long time. So I actually worked at, in the IT department at TriHealth, which is the, I think the largest healthcare um, uh, system in Cincinnati area. They have maybe, I don't know, probably eight hospitals or something like that, if you count all the suburbs. Uh, so I worked in the IT department there, and then I just continued to work around a lot of records management software startups. Um, you know, did a series of startups, a uh, little bit of consulting, and then in 2008 started Unstoppable Software, um, with the idea, I think, being that for companies that are sort of, you know, uh, a little behind the times maybe, or sort of in that older technology world, be it, you know, healthcare, manufacturing, you know, engineering firms that, you know, they, that need to innovate, uh, being a, a partner for them that basically, you know, doesn't say, doesn't say no and doesn't give up. So that's kind of our unstoppable uh, mantra, right? Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how I got to where I am today. That's interesting. You mentioned a, a few industries. How long is a typical engagement with some of these clients? That's a good question. I mean, we, so we have one, you know, very large manufacturing firm that, I mean, they're probably a $40 billion company. I mean, they've been our client on all kinds of projects for the last 12 years, more or less continuously. Um, we tend to, uh, you know, we don't, of course, you know, I'm not going to say we keep every client forever because you do, there is churn sometimes, but, uh, but we have clients that, you know, once we start working with them, we work, it's, it's multi-year engagements. Um, I think part of that is sort of because we, we work everything in sort of agile phases where we're, we're doing, you know, six, nine month projects at a time with a roadmap of maybe two or three years, right? Uh, sometimes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, our average initial engagement might be four to eight months, something like that. Uh, but then we tend to get a lot of repeat business, which is great. I mean, that, that's definitely a good sign if your customers are coming back to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, help me understand. So are these, you know, are you building software for consumers or is it specifically for your clients to be used internally in their companies? Like what kind of software is this? Yeah, I mean, I think we mostly do uh, B2B solutions, internal applications like that. We, we have done some uh, customer or client-facing uh, business software solutions. And sometimes it's not even B2C, but it's, it's still external-facing. Like it may be, uh, you know, something for recruiting or sales or some kind of uh, marketing purpose where you're, you're trying to work with, uh, you know, for instance, nurses that you want to hire, something like that, right? Um, so it's not exactly B2C in the same way that like, I don't know, uh, you know, true consumer products would be. Um, but we definitely have a large focus on um, systems to try to help um, streamline operations, right? I mean, I think I do in my role, I kind of wear a lot of a, a, a quite often wear an operations consultant hat um, because people have some problem where, you know, they're, people are just spending way too much time doing something on paper or Excel or some cumbersome system and they want to figure out a better way. Um, you know, some, a lot of times it's that they've devised this, just this process they do completely manually via post-it notes or something or, or whatever. Uh, and they, they say, okay, now we know how it needs to happen. It needs to be in a computer, well, but that's never, that's never one-to-one. -one, right. Uh, and so I'll work with them to say, like, you know, you could use barcodes in this way, or you could, you know, use RFID tags or something in some interesting way uh, to leverage that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's all about systems to make people more efficient. Yeah, and I think, you know, it sounds like from what I'm hearing is you listen to your customers' problems. You try to understand what their problem is, and then you dissect that problem and try to find out what could be a solution that would really make sense for them because not all solutions work for all customers, I'm sure. Um, yeah. And, you know, and you mentioned how, you know, in operations there could be a lot of issues, but 
One of the issues in the healthcare system specifically is related to transacting information and trust, trusting partners that are outside your own company. So mm-hmm. how do you have your clients discussed with you, you know, those issues about trust and like sharing data with other people? Yeah, I mean, so certainly, I, I mean, I guess certainly when they're dealing with us, that's, you know, they always want to make sure their source code is secure and their secrets are secure. And, you know, so we have a lot of non- non-disclosures that happen and things like that. Um, I think, you know, regardless of whether we're working in the healthcare space or other spaces, there's there's always information that needs to be shared with, outs- with outside parties. You know, sometimes it can be uh, your regulator. Uh, it may be a peer. Um, and, and of course, you know, often in, in healthcare situations, they're not really a competitor since at least a lot of our healthcare customers are highly regional, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's more just a peer in another location. But you know they don't want to be liable if they if if information escapes or uh, and so forth. Um, so there's always these these instances where that information has to sort of hop that boundary, um, usually into a completely different environment, right? I mean nobody is, or at least it's not always the case that everybody's running the same uh, the same system. Um, so yeah, I mean I think that's definitely. Uh, you know, even just last week in, in some contracts I was negotiating, there's always questions about, you know, well, who has this kind of liability and, and what liability can you shove off and so and so and so forth, right? So it's, it's definitely at the forefront of their minds. Yeah, and, you know, you having worked with EHRs in the past and currently, I think that's a really interesting field because everyone wants, well, I think that everyone wants to own their own data in a way or at least have their own data wherever they are. So if they're going from one doctor to another. They don't want to have to, you know, reach out to an old provider at an old in an old state using an old system, you know, piece them together into some sort of Excel database or just put them into like a Google folder or something or Dropbox. It's hard to manage our own healthcare data. Yeah. Why? Why is it so hard? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I think that the industry... Uh, you know, it's funny, they, they of course, were pretty haphazard for a, a long time ago. Like, let's say, I don't know, 20 years ago, probably. I think it was probably, I mean, I think HIPAA became law in 1996, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I have to look that up. But shortly before I started, start, sort of started my career. And, of course, they talk about part of that is the Portability Act, right? And, and you know, is it really that portable is a question. But... Uh, so everybody kind of, you know, said, all right, we need to be digital. We need to get, cause at the time, of course, there were just warehouses full of paper. Um, and I was really at the, I mean, I was very lucky because I was at like ground zero for that paper digitization process. I mean, the company I was at at the time, I mean, I was building their, their main product line and, you know, they would go into a big hospital like, like UPMC in Pittsburgh and, literally just scan all the paper and then all the paper was gone. And I mean, we're talking about just, you know, huge warehouses full of paper. Um, so they had to go digital and then that was all about control, 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 right. And, and, and privacy. But of course, if you're saying, Oh, and you have to share it. Well, well, wait a minute. Like that's the, that's the opposite of, of privacy, right? Like it needs to be easily shareable, but super, super private. Right. Um, and I think, you know, there's there's a number of problems. I mean, so so one of it is one of the reasons, like I said, is that regulatory thing, and, and how do how does it align on that? And, and the other thing is, I mean, a lot of these companies, and, and depend, you know, if you look at the largest hospitals, this, this is not always the case. But a lot of the companies out there, they're still using a lot of antiquated systems. You know, they're using medical systems and record systems. Uh, I mean, even as of a few years ago, some of them were using very old systems, practically, you know, only a step or so away from a mainframe. Uh, you know, and they're slow to, they're slow to adopt new things. Um, you know, you know, and I don't, I don't think there's a, been a huge penetration in the market yet of, you know, really like latest generation software for that. What would you consider latest generation is like Cerner and Epic and Athena health. I mean, just thinking of big examples. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, I think, you know, certainly some of those, um, but, and I mean, without a doubt, like Epic is very dominant, especially among like the largest hospitals, right? But I, I guess I'm referring more to like, you know, the, the style and feel of the platform and not not necessarily the brand of it, right? I mean, can, uh, I mean, if, you, you know, you see some that are pretty good, 
Um, you know, our local uh, system uh, here uses MyChart, which is an epic system, I believe. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's pretty good. You know, you can access your things online, but only for that one, you know, that one hospital, right? Um, but I think a lot of, especially if you look at smaller organizations and, and places like labs and clinics and stuff like that, uh, you know, they don't, you can't pull it up on your phone. It's not, they don't have that kind of access yet, right? Um, so I think there's a little hesitancy to, or they've been slow to adopt that. Uh, you know, and then the other problem too is, you know, you mentioned Epic and some of these big systems. I mean, it's just widely known in the industry that these are hard to integrate with, you know, that they like to keep their secrets, you know, they like to keep their data. And we see that not just in healthcare records management, but but other, but all kinds of record management. Um, you know, if you look at tools like Highland Software, which which works a lot with Epic, I mean, getting the data out is is very expensive, challenging, you know, special tools. Um, so they're not, I mean, that's just my, you know, review anyway. My opinion on those folks is they don't risk, they don't really have an open-minded uh, approach all the time. Uh, and that's, you know, any developer you talk to who has to integrate with any of those systems will tell you, yeah, good luck. You know, it's, it's, it's a, a battle, you know? Um, yeah, no, I could, I definitely agree with you there. Um, I think, you know, what, we've been seeing or what I think we've been seeing in the last few years is this interest in using blockchain technology as a way to better interoperate between these different systems. Um, you know, in certain, for certain components, not like entirely. I mean, we have seen a few years ago, a bunch of companies in the blockchain cryptocurrency space trying to promote or build personal health record systems. Um, we've seen many of those fizzle out. I think there's a lot of more thought that needs to go into how that can actually be a successful endeavor. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a really difficult, challenging thing to do, especially when you have these big organizations like Cerner and Epic already, you know, they have the market basically. Um, yeah. but do you, in your conversations with your clients, have you seen any interest in using decentralized ledger technologies, um, to kind of solve for those long-standing problems? Yeah, I think I think there's definite interest. Um, I think the statistic I saw somewhere is blockchain technology is being explored by about half of all healthcare leadership, uh, you know, executives. So they're all looking, or a large portion of them are looking at it. Um, you know, and I think definitely a, a, a sort of an, what seems to be like a low-hanging fruit is that sharing and ubiquity of, of records. Right. Um, you know, it, and it's funny because if you go out and you search for companies doing that, like you just look for, you know, blockchain records management or healthcare records management, like you said, there's a lot. And you look at what they say they do, they all say the same thing. We provide one place, one point of access for all your patient records. Um, so, you know, it seems like a pretty obvious answer. Right. Uh, and I think they're, I think they're very interested in that. Um, but they also, I think a, a lot of them would say, yeah, but, you know, I mean, they have a lot of the same concerns. Where does the data live? Um, does every place the data live need to be considered a business associate for HIPAA reasons? Um, how are we going to to deal with that? Who's liable? Uh, you know, who has access to this, right? Um, you know, I, I think there's also interest in, uh, you know, if you look outside of hospitals and healthcare and, and you look at like prescription drug companies, um, I've, I've worked in probably, I guess it was during college, I worked for a generic drug manufacturer for a while. So sort of have that healthcare background as well, um, which is now part of Bar Laboratories. Uh, and so, you know, people are looking at it from in terms of traceability and chain of custody and all those sort of things as well. Um, they're also looking at it from like a cost accounting perspective and, you know, supplies, medical supplies that come in and out of out of a facility. I think that some of those seem like they're more likely to happen because, um, you know, there's a little bit more single point of uh, who can make a decision if you're allowed to do that, maybe. Um, and to some degree, I mean, if they want to use, you know, a blockchain traceability for their cost accounting, I mean, maybe they can just do it. They're just, they can just buy a product and put it in, right? Um, as long as the supplier is party to that, you know, whoever they're, whoever is sending them those things, maybe, maybe there's less resistance uh, to that. So I think, you know, I think they're looking at um, a lot of those sort of things. 
you know, types of solutions. I think the other thing too is that, you know, the blockchain marketplace evolves very quickly. Uh, you know, if you look at, you know, if you want to do some sort of a, a contract-based system, you know, of course, I mean, there's a lot of options there now for what you might pick. I mean, there's a plethora of them, you know. And of course, you know, Ethereum and Cardano and, and these other ones that have sort of sprung out. And so because it's it's so young and sort of fickle in a way, if you're a large health organization and you want to pick the one that's going to be like the long-standing, long-term solution, well, which what is it you build on? Because they're constantly changing, right? Um, so that's that's tricky too. How do you make how do you base an enterprise decision on this like very fast moving kind of startupy uh, environment? It's not an easy decision to make either because you know these protocols. Once you pick one, I mean, in some cases it's difficult to to change it. In yeah. other cases, though, it's quite easy. You can have you can build a system where it's kind of agnostic to which base protocol you're running. Um, yep. How has COVID-19 impacted your business and clients' interests? Uh, I think, you know, for a lot of our clients, they, um, well, so I think from a blockchain perspective, I have heard people talking about, um, you know, y using some sort of blockchain solution for, uh, things like testing records, test records, trace of uh, contact tracing, stuff like that. Um, you know, probably that's going to need to be a state level decision just because of all the parties involved. I mean, it's not something that it, any one insurer or hospital can can choose to do. Um, you know, I think on a more micro level, uh, you know, I think for our business, um, we've since we've always worked in sort of a remote setup, for the most part, it hasn't had too much of an impact. Um, it probably, I, I think the bigger impact for us is just schools being closed really. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of my customers, um, a lot of them have struggled to also give sort of adequate, um, VPN connectivity. I mean, if, if you imagine yes. a lot of, yeah, I mean, a lot of companies, you know, they, they have a VPN and all that set up, but that's just for the folks that occasionally need to work from home. When all of a sudden you have 350 people that need to work from home hundred percent, how many more you know, VPN devices, do you have to buy to, to fulfill that? I mean, they were sort of scrambling. And obviously, these things are probably backordered for months at this point, right? Um, so I saw, I've seen a lot of uh, clients struggle with that. Um, you know, it, but I think uh, one of my customers in the healthcare space, I mean, immediately, of course, they had to go out and find a, a, a telemedicine platform, uh, which is kind of interesting, you know, talk about when you're talking about sort of some of these leaps and bounds they need to make into blockchain or anything else, they had been exploring and talking about telemedicine for probably five years. It has never done it. You know, they looked at this, maybe we should build one, maybe we should buy one, you know, all these things. And then it was like, okay, you need to do it right now. <laughs> right. Um, so there's a catalyst to, to force that. So it'll be interesting to see, is there some catalyst that forces, you know, a more open uh, medical record system? That's really interesting. Yeah. So you're kind of creating this analogy of what, you know, so COVID-19 is to telehealth. What could be the COVID-19 for blockchain in the healthcare space? That's, that's kind of yeah. what you're, you're hinting at there. Yeah. Or, or I mean, and you know, I, I think it makes sense that blockchain is the right, I mean, it's probably the best solution we have to the idea. Like if I said, Hey, I want a decentralized way that no matter what state I move into, I can share my record at any hospital or any clinic anywhere. How else are you going to do that? You know, I mean, in, in a, in a single like ubiquitous format, um, it seems like dude, the blockchain should be this answer to that. And like I said, it's the low hanging fruit. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people, I think, you know, you mentioned this before is some of the low hanging fruit actually doesn't have any PHI. At least that's what I've been hearing is the low hanging fruit are things like provider credentialing information or provider mm -hmm. directories. And there are consortiums working on that or drug yeah. supply chain track and trace. Um, but whenever you get into, you know, PHI or PII, anything that's identifiable to you, it becomes a little bit more scary and people are more concerned about how it works and hesitant to adopt. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I know like one of the, 
you know, one of the cases I've seen that there's been discussion around is dealing with, uh, you know, not even the medical record, like, you know, you're talking about lack of PHI, but like the education record um, and the sort of like, um, uh, you know, the, the level of assistance or tutoring or anything else that a child in foster care may need. Uh, you know, some of those kids are often shuffled all all over the place. And so, for instance, in Ohio, I think what I was told is, you know, like when they shuffle from Cleveland to Cincinnati, for instance, if they're moving to to and from a grandparent grandparent's house, relatively sort of easy to, you know, get that data from the school district, from, um, you know, and, and some of it, some of it is PHI as well. I mean, get their counselor's records and stuff, right? But if they, but if they go across the river, which is of course a lot closer, like you could be, you know, you could be a mile away and be in Kentucky from Cincinnati, right? But even though you're only a mile away, it's much harder to do that Kentucky to Ohio. You know what I mean? Rather than mm-hmm. Ohio to Ohio. Right. Um, so, you know, foster care records, for instance, um, could be its own whole thing. That's really that, interesting, that it, actually. Like tracking yeah. the, you know, what grade they graduated from, what classes did they take, their actual grades. Um, that's a really interesting use case for the education industry as a whole, actually. Yeah. Well, and I think, it, and, and part of it is, I mean, there's definitely the education standpoint because these kids tend to, as you can imagine, if if you come down and I'm an adoptive father. And so we sort of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, had to be, had to learn a lot about the foster care industry to, in order to be qualified to adopt. Right. Um, but obviously if, you, if you're a child in foster care and you're transferring schools and grades and, and, and what if you go to a school that, I mean, they're not, they're not teaching the same thing as your other school. It's not that standard, right? So, and what grade should you go into? And um, But then there's also stuff like, you know, that again is PHI related. If you have, let's say you battle, uh, let's say in Cleveland you were diagnosed with depression mm-hmm. and you come down and they have no record of that and you don't really know because you're just some kid. Maybe, maybe you're eight years old, you know, you don't know what it is. So then you're going to see a new clinician in Cincinnati. What's he going to diagnose you with? What if he diagnoses you with, you know, anxiety? Yeah, it's a it's a different diagnosis, totally different treatment, everything else, right? But that shouldn't happen, right? Yeah. Like, but but those, and I mean, there are efforts to fix that, and people are aware of that problem, and and I think that it it is something folks watch, uh, and they do a good job of that. But it probably is a lot harder than it should be. Tell me a little bit about the decision making process that your clients take to kind of decide whether or not they want to build their own let's use telehealth as an example yeah build their own versus buy or look for existing options yeah it's a great question so i think that there's you know there's the decision making process that they probably usually go through and then there's the one that i sort of encourage them to go through (laughs) the process i encourage them to try to do um so you know obviously on, on any customer's side it's, you know, come up with a list of features that we think we want and then go out and try to find something off the shelf. That's usually the first step. Find something off the shelf that does an okay-ish job on some amount as hopefully as much as possible of those features we can get. And of course, you know, you can prioritize the features, high, medium, low, and say, well, and of course, people try to come up, and you see this in RFPs, right? People try to come up with some sort of a rubric where it's like, we're going to give such solutions so many points based on whether it delivers the high, medium, low feature, and then whatever package has the highest points, blah, 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 right? Right. It, which is sort of this made-up thing that is, you can, I mean, you can game that however you want, right? Like, sure. I mean, if you really like one package, well, just knock the priority of that feature down. You know? yeah. um, and it kind of gets corrupted a little bit by people's preferences, because uh, you'll hear people say like, oh, yeah, I got the highest score, but it's it's not as pretty as this other one. You end up buying from the people you like. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And you get that problem too. And then there's touchy feely stuff like, who do you like? What salesperson do you like? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I know salespeople that can talk anybody into anything. Right. Um, People feel really, you know, when they're given a discount that can influence their purchase, of course. Yeah. So, so there's that sort of like, I think that's a very, like, it's a process that very poorly serves the customer. Right. Uh, I think what they ought to do is, you know, essentially look at, um, j- just look at those 
really critical uh, features. I mean, you can look at all the features, but assign sort of like a dollar value to them and how much we're really getting out of this and look at, you know, each, each package you might be looking at, you know, do they, they have to deliver on all the high priority on the biggest dollar values, but maybe what if they just do the most, the biggest dollar value feature? What if they just do that really well? Like, you know, these things are not apples to apples. Uh, you know, look at the total dollar value you're potentially getting out of anything off the shelf, right? And then I think from the build standpoint, you can kind of do the same thing because there's always going to be some features, uh, you know, for instance, in telemedicine that a given package just can't do. It doesn't integrate with our EMR. Okay. How important is that? Well, that is worth a million dollars a year to us. Okay. Well, if it's worth a million dollars a year, versus the $60,000 subscription price, let's say, for your telemedicine thing, then you should probably build it because as long as you don't spend a million dollars, right, for, for building your own, then you're going to get your value out of it, right? Uh, so, you know, you've got to look at the dollar value of all those features. Uh, and, and I think my point is, is that often those custom features that are like just, just writing something, you know, making something just right, have the greatest dollar value to the organization because they're they're they are what really ties into your DNA, right? Of of how you work better than your competitors, better than just anybody out there. Um, so all those dollar values have to be looked at, I think, in order to really come up with an assessment. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. As we all know, to safely open up our communities, widespread COVID-19 testing must become available to everyone. Kahala Biosciences LLC, a California-based COVID-19 testing distribution startup, and RyMedi Incorporated, a blockchain technology company based in Greenville, South Carolina, have partnered to launch the Adiona COVID-19 antibody testing platform. Francis Duhai, Kahala's CEO, said the ultimate vision is for people to employ both viral antigen and antibody testing at home. To initiate testing, patients enter their health information and receive a personalized QR code, which is used to track them throughout the entire testing process. After they take the finger stick test, their results are relayed to their phone within 15 minutes Details regarding the test manufacturer, shipping, user health and personal information, payment, time and location of testing, and the results are all securely captured by their blockchain technology. The Adiona platform is currently under clinical investigation and not yet approved by the FDA. The COVID-19 IgG IgM tests are not approved by FDA and are currently undergoing emergency use authorization evaluation. I hope this vision becomes reality, as it would be a great solution to our current lack of COVID-19 testing. I'm sure the details of the platform are still being worked on, but this is a step in the right direction. I'll be following this partnership very closely. And now back to the show with Sam Schutte, CEO of Unstoppable Software. Tell me about some companies or some clients you might have had that I know we're thinking about offshoring their development work and what are some of the pros and cons there? And I'm not sure. I think maybe if you have any experience or any kind of stories related to blockchain, that would be really interesting to hear too hmm. in the With offshore off space. I'm trying to think, uh, trying to think of, I feel like there, I had one customer that was doing some offshore for blockchain. Um, I can't, I can't recall the details of it, but I, I mean, I guess in general, you know, the, the challenge with offshoring is just, you know, what makes good software is good communication. Okay. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, it, it has to do what you want it to do. And the way that you get it to do that is by, you know, a lot of really good conversation and feedback and guidance and stuff with your team. And I think that while a lot of the, while a lot of the tools that enable us to sort of like work remotely as a team of developers, I mean, yeah, you can use them in India, China, whatever, right? But you still don't always get 
uh, enough communication, a high quality communication with that team. Cause you're, you know, you're designing a product, right. Is what you're really doing. Um, and that's just, that's just hard to do. I think, um, unless you can get that high level communication and some teams can, and I, and I've heard of folks working with, uh, Chinese companies and, and so forth that are great, you know? Um, but typically speaking, we find, you know, I have a, I have a customer right now that, uh, is not in the healthcare space, but is, is in a services space. And, you know, they have a team in India that does like their maintenance, they say, right. That's kind of, they just say, oh, they do the maintenance. So they're kind of doing like the small, low risk tasks that can be very easily defined, right? Mm-hmm. So this, you know, when you click this button, it pops up an error message, make it not do that, right? Uh, so that sort of stuff, if you can get it that granular, I think can be good. Now, I talked to someone last week who is a client that is, um, they want to build a system in the um, bio-authentication space. Um, and you know, they want to outsource the entire project to one individual in, uh, I think in China somewhere. And I kind of discourage them from that because, you know, you can imagine trying to build this entire, entire product spec in a way that this one person in China is going to be able to build from it, uh, is going to be really hard, you know, and inconvenient. You're gonna have a lot of midnight meetings, right? Um, and even once you even once you get there, you have some issues around IP, ownership, you know, patents. This person has patents. Are they going to be honored? Maybe. Hmm. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's ways, but can he afford to do those ways, right? Um, so you know, I kind of said, look, you should at least work with a large enough Chinese outsourcing company that can guarantee some quality, some results, right? But just going to a single. Uh, contractor over there is, seems risky to me. So I think, you know, point is, is uh, offshoring, I think, can have some value. Uh, but I think w- what we do a lot of times, and, you know, and I don't know if maybe some of your listeners are looking to build blockchain systems cheaply, for instance, right, um, overseas. I think it can really help to have someone onshore that is sort of your management person, your product manager, your product owner, your project manager, uh, even if the work is being done overseas, because it's still, there's a lot of guidance that needs to be sort of issued and created and done for that to be done well. Um, frankly, I feel like when it all nets out, it doesn't really save that much money uh, because I've seen people build whole things overseas and then just like, completely redo it, you know, <laughs> with somebody onshore here. So depends on your luck. Yeah, and in terms of like, you know, having someone build out like a blockchain solution for you, I think, you know, blockchain has so many components to it, right? You have the, the yeah. community aspect of it, the, the entire networking aspect, the um, the infrastructure where the data is stored and where transactions are happening. Uh, you also want to think about, um, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. I had a question for you. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But if you're talking about things like smart contracts, where it's a little bit more, you know, you, you could define it a little bit more specifically versus like, yeah. oh, can you please build me a blockchain? Uh, that's obviously not something I don't think I would offshore that to any, you know, person in China or a small team. It's definitely something you would need to think out really specifically and over time and with a larger yeah. community of people. Um, but have you talked about smart contracts with any of your clients? Has that come up? You know, not a, honestly, not a whole lot. Um, I think that for most of my clients, their understanding of the whole thing is so high level mm-hmm. that they'll just kind of say, we want to work blockchain into this somehow, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what I hear a lot from, especially like from startups and stuff I work with or younger companies that might, uh, you know, be working on some kind of a platform and that, you know, they, they hear a lot of buzz about it and there's a lot of interest. And I think there is, there could be a fit. Um, but other times we look at it and it's kind of, I'm not sure how you would wedge some kind of blockchain thing into it. So I think, you know, for them to get to the level of understanding, like most of what I think that when we've had to get involved, you know, we'll have to say, okay, look, let us explain to you uh, what that even means. What this, when you say you want blockchain, 
uh, like, what are you talking about? Do you want a currency that people are somehow paying your company for services? Do you want, uh, you know, some kind of contract? You know, wh what are you trying to do here? You know, and explain those options a little bit. Uh, and then they might say, oh, that's what we want. But normally they don't sort of know the terminology well enough um, to sort of just come and present that is what they need. Uh, that's what I've, that's what I've usually found. And, and I think that's because our clients are, I mean, they're business people that are, you know, trying to run and operate their companies. They don't have time to explore everything. Right. And I think um, the whole concept of blockchain is very, it shifts everything around. Like the accounting is going to change potentially if, if you involve a cryptocurrency yeah. in your business, like the whole way you do accounting. Um, yeah. It's really interesting. What are you seeing in terms of trends towards open source software? Yeah, some pretty cool stuff going on in that space. Um, so we, it's, so I started my career as a Java developer, um, did that for several years. And then at the company I was at, which was that medical records company, they wanted us to explore .NET. And this was, you know, 2003, 2004, right? So very, when it very first came out, um, explore that. And so really for the next few years, I did a lot of work in C Sharp, C++, C, a lot of C-based languages. That's kind of where I've always stuck. And so that's always kind of been where we have had most of our focus as a development team uh, is in just C-based languages, right? And done a lot of .NET. Um, and so that's been a big thing recently um, with Microsoft. Um, and I know, you know, hey, your people have different opinions on Microsoft, but they've been very good to us. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but you know, Microsoft, of course, has embraced this open source thing. I think that I even saw, what is it, recently they kind of said, we're, hey, we were wrong about open source, you know. They came out, kind of came out and said that. Uh, and, of course, .NET Core is the big thing recently that uh, has really been promoted. And, you know, I, I think it's great because what it's allowed us to do, I think we've done, of the last, like, maybe four or five projects we've done, I think two or three of them, uh, we're actually, you know, .NET Core systems are running on Linux servers, right? Uh, and what we've seen is that can be so much faster and for, you know, dollar for dollar than trying to do the same thing on a Windows server. And I mean, we've done a lot of, we've done a lot of crazy things on Windows servers <laughs> over, the, over the days. Uh, but, you know, when you can spin up a $5 Linux box, put a .NET Core uh, web app on it, and it's just screaming, you know, and my guys and I were laughing, we're like, the fastest Windows app or the fastest .NET apps we've ever built are running on Linux. Like, it, it, you know, I wouldn't have believed that maybe whatever, just a couple of years ago. Um, so I think that opens a ton of doors. And I think that what we're seeing in the enterprise space is that a lot of folks who uh, were starting to look at other solutions in, or, in order to be able to use Linux stuff, right? So maybe they were looking more at uh, you know, I don't know, just a variety of other Linux or, or Linux-based languages and platforms are coming back now to .NET Core because they're like, oh, well, now this is available. We would have we would have never left the .NET world if we could have done this, right? So we're getting a lot of demand for that from from folks that, you know, maybe two years ago, a year ago, would have said, oh, hey, can you build some kind of a you know, uh, whatever Linux-based platform system? Um, so I think that's that's positive for the Microsoft world because, you know, historically they have had the strongest or a, a very strong footprint in the enterprise world. Um, you know, I think it's probably positive for, you know, security and stuff that, that we've perhaps windows sometimes has struggled to uh, perhaps be as strong as, uh, as Linux has. Um, and people have a lot of different opinions on that, but, uh, but personally, I think that, in the enterprise, if 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 our customers could be deploying more uh, Ubuntu servers and stuff like that, and scale up that much more quickly for a lot less money, and still sort of get the benefits uh, and, and the strength of development tools that Visual Studio and stuff provides, uh, I think that could be a win-win. Uh, rather than having to learn entirely new platforms, so hmm. it's pretty pretty interesting stuff happening. That is really interesting. And you specifically kind of focused on Microsoft in that uh, answer too. So I didn't know much about um, what's happened with .NET and, and all that. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we've, and we've, you know, we do work on other platforms, but 
but it's fairly routine or typical for us to, you know, when we're dealing with, again, big companies in manufacturing, healthcare, that's pretty much what they want is, is Microsoft Stack. Um, now we have, and in, in, on the open source topic, uh, even just uh, two weeks ago, I signed a contract that it says specifically in our contract, we will not use any open source solutions at all, right? Hmm. And so then it's like, uh, what about .NET? Is, is the, like, does that not, because they're all, you know, this what was customers, the before, behind that? Uh, you know, security? lawyers. Security? Is it a security? Yeah, I think, I think the concern is that, I mean, it's a, perhaps it's a little bit of lack of understanding, but the concern is always that, um, <clears throat> well, there's two things. One is, does somebody sneak something in to a build of this open source thing that, that compromises security? That's probably, I guess that's probably happened in the past, you know, okay. But if it's open uh, source, everyone can kind of, it's peer reviewed many times yeah. over, so. You'd think people would catch it, but the concept is hard for people to, to you know, uh, sort of. Uh, I guess they'd rather follow. trust a company fully and just put the liability on that company. Like if you trust a single company where it's closed software, at least you yeah. know who to blame if something goes wrong. Yeah. And I, and I think the bigger thing though, since it's mainly attorneys that try to stick that sort of language in, in my experience, and I mean, it's not just one company, it's probably half of my customers will, will put something like that in there. Um, I think it has to do a little bit with the intellectual property ownership because, you know, with some of these open source licenses, by using their stuff, you whatever you use it in, you know, there's there's various ones, but it would also have to be open sourced as well, right? Sure, yeah. um, and, and some of them don't require that, but others do. And so I think that could be a little bit of a nightmare situation if you can imagine if you're if you're a commercial software company and some developer just sticks in some framework that has that kind of requirement, does that totally blow your claim to your IP out of the water? I mean, that could be very bad. I don't know. I don't. I don't know that I've ever heard of anyone that's happened to. You know, like. But I think that's probably the basis of it. Um, hmm. And typically, those sort of clauses, it's easier for us just to agree to rather than argue about it. Um, but it is funny because, you know, all of those customers are using Microsoft.net, which is itself open source now, right? So, yeah, it's like. You know, the lawyers just don't know that, I guess. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> well, now they do. <laughs> right, yeah. They're listening. Uh, yeah. So I have some personal questions, and yeah. this will be fun. You know, if it's not too personal, what would you consider to be your biggest mistake? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I think, you know, just if I look over the last, like, uh, 12 years of business, probably the biggest stumbling block I've made that's really cost me the most amount of money is, you know, and, and this is like this is like an entrepreneur question more than a technology question, um, but is is trying to outsource the high value pieces of what we are as a business instead of the low value pieces or parts, right? And so what I mean by that is, and, and this is a trap I, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs fall into is they'll say, I, you know, I'm a software developer, I'm a techie, uh, I need to hire, I need to go out and find like a sales, I need to find a sales guy, you know, I need to find a salesperson that can just do all the sales and marketing for me because that's not who I am. I don't have that strength. I need the guy with the business side, right? And, and that's fine, you know, I mean, and if you want to give half your company away to a partner who is the business side guy, or maybe that's how you start, that's fine. Um, but the reality is, is, you know, if you're the owner of the company and the entrepreneur, like you need to know how to run a business. You need to do that. You know, you can't outsource that. You need to know, you need to be, particularly if you're a consulting company like us, and frankly, even if you're a big, you know, software product company, you have to be like the closer. You can't be, you know, the the guy who, I just play in code. I don't know what happens in the business, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's, in my opinion, a, a very bad idea because, you know, particularly for our type of company, Nobody is ever going to do as good a job closing, selling, paying a, a picture for, for customers as I am, you know, it, it's very hard to teach that. I mean, I could probably, could probably do it over time, but it, it's not something as a young company, you can just hire somebody to do. Um, so, so I think that was a mistake I, I made kind of early on, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go hire some really big gun sales guy who can come in and just knock things out of the park for me. Um, 
you know, when, when, when I made those kind of choices, like I said, it cost me a lot of money with limited results because, you know, part of the problem is, I, I mean, how do I teach somebody who we are and how we do things and what we believe in? Like, I mean, you need to have so much like training program for that, that we didn't have. Right. Um, yeah. Need, they would need to like start with you in the beginning and kind of like go through yeah. all the, the rough parts. Yeah. They'd have to have those same, cause I mean, I probably started exploring this, you know, five, six years into the business maybe, um, where, and they weren't there for those first five or six years to know. And particularly if they just, you know, if that person just isn't you and they just don't, they don't have your skill set and everything else. So I think, you know, if you bring somebody in like that and you say, cause I've tried both spectrums. I, I hired like the big gun sales guy that was really expensive, you know, spent a ton of money, six figures paying somebody to, to be that closer when it's like, it always had to be me, right? It was never going to be this person. Um, and then I did the other side of the spectrum. I said, all right, well, if I've got to teach somebody a lot of stuff, let me hire like a really junior green guy and he can go out and set all the appointments and do all the networking and, and grow the business. And again, how do you train, where's the, you know, how do you train them to do that? And yeah, they can go out and talk to a bunch of people, but they're still not, they don't know the message as well as you. They can't answer on the spot. You know I mean? If, mm-hmm. if that person were to come on this podcast or any podcast to represent us, could they answer the questions like right. they'd have to practice ahead of time. It just, it wouldn't work. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that's, you know, those high value pieces. Cause to me, like, honestly, like, you know, the sales, the, the, uh, public facing, you know, the, the message, the product, all that, like, that's what you are as a business, right? Those are the high value things. Um, that's not what you should try to outsource. You should outsource just those low, low value parts or lower value parts. Right. I mean, it's still a value. Um, and that's what I've kind of pivoted now where, you know, so now it's more like, you know, I have a bookkeeper, I have an assistant, I have, uh, you know, uh, an accountant, I have a lawyer, I have those folks that, you know, it's not that they're no value. I mean, a lawyer is very valuable, right? Sure. But, you know, I'd be crazy if I said, well, I'm not going to hire a lawyer. Instead, I'm just going to get a law degree and do it myself. Yeah. <laughs> like, people are like, well, that sounds like a bad idea. So it's it's lower value in that or lower, I guess, uh, you know, crucial to who you are in a way and in that you can kind of always go find a different attorney if you need to. Right. I mean, there's sure. good ones and bad ones, but you know what I mean? Um, so I think that's a key. That's a key thing that I spun my wheels on for many years, spent a lot of money on before I just sort of realized, like, I have to take I have to take those, uh, you know, uh, take that by the horns. Yeah, there's no substitute for that experience that you you had. So, yeah, um, I forgot to ask you this earlier on in the episode, but how did you first learn about blockchain technology? No, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I, um, so <laughs> it's funny. I it's a really funny story because I was kind of into like mining for a while, right? Um, and I think it was probably I don't know what year it was, but. I remember um, hearing about Bitcoin and I went and I downloaded the Bitcoin client onto my PC and I just let it run, uh, just doing like CPU mining, right? And I think I came back like a week later and I saw that it hadn't produced any... I remember thinking, oh, that wasn't worth it, right? And I just Mm -hmm. turned it off, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, And so then fast forward like two, three years. So at at that point, I mean, Bitcoin was worth like a billionth of a cent, right? and I well, think if it, you started it then, you might have some, <laughs> some uh, Bitcoin like worthwhile. Well, checking. That yeah, out. and that's and there's a funny story to that, right? Yeah. So, uh, so a couple years later, I was, you know, Bitcoin had gone up quite a bit. All those, you know, the altcoins had sort of blossomed, right? Uh, and so I, I don't know. I just for some reason I, I read up on it, got back into it, and I mean, I went and I built the milk crate mining rig in the basement. I mean, that thing was pumped. It was like my heater in the basement where my office was, right? And I think I was mainly mining Litecoins uh, and, and popping those out. But I had this crazy idea that it would, should be like a cash flow thing where like as soon as they were mined, I sold them, right? You know, hmm. uh, I wish, of course, I had hung on to them because I, I looked at one point. I mean, I think when I was selling them, I don't know, I probably did like $800 worth in a year. This, uh, I don't know what year this was, probably like um, maybe 2009, 2008, maybe. maybe well, so, I mean, the, the protocol... You know, 
I think the first time the first block was mined in two thousand nine or late okay. two thousand eight. Right. So okay, so maybe it was like must have been later than that. Are you Satoshi Nakamoto? Yeah. <laughs> no, but so it must have been later than then. I, I yeah. That was when I had little kids. I can't remember all the years, but okay, yeah. but I would if I had held on to those Litecoin, it would have been worth uh, not a ton, like not crazy money, but you know, ten times that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, maybe ten grand. So uh, anyway, did that for a little while, and then eventually I I did some of the cloud cloud mining stuff. Um, so I would, you know, like Genesis mining and some of these others out there, I was buying all these cloud mining contracts and I don't know, I probably made some money on it. Um, but the funny thing is, is so I was, you know, I was doing all this and I was like, wait a minute, when I was running that Bitcoin thing, what year was that? When was that? And I think it was, I think that was like 2010. Okay. When I had it on my little, you know, crappy computer and I was like, wait a minute, if I got any blocks at all, I would have gotten 25 because that's what I think, or 50 maybe. I think at the time it was 50, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 50. So I was like, wait a minute, did I get 50 Bitcoin doing that? Like, and I, and I couldn't remember, I really couldn't remember. But at at the time I thought what happened is I looked at it and I said 50 times like a billionth of a penny. Well, this was dumb. This was a waste of time. Right. And I thought, wait a minute. So I went and man, I went to the storage unit. (laughs) I mean, I was like, you know, it was like the, the, uh, uh, cliche dumpster diving for hard drives, right? I mean, I got, I must have had 10 hard drives in here from every old machine I ever had, just searching for wallets on it, right? I mean, I had some, I found some tools that could like, you know, go over the, uh, the file record table on the hard drive, even if it had been formatted and all this stuff, you know, yeah. just trying to find. And I think I actually found finally the, um, you know, the final one. And it was funny because I told friends this and my one friend was like, wow, you might be a millionaire. <laughs> you know? yeah. I was like, yeah, maybe. But I think I finally found the wallet and it had, it was zero. So I was like, okay, I guess uh, I, I never actually did mine them, but who knew, right? So that was, anyway, That that's how I sort of initially got into it. It was definitely from the currency side. Um, and then I think I, I was, I kind of very actively followed Cardano because I think that was a pretty cool um platformer still is um so that was the one i sort of researched the most in terms of you know applications outside of just currency i think um and i'm a little behind now on what what they're doing specifically but but yeah if you had to have a microchip implanted in your body where would you want it to be implanted (laughs) this was a good one i thought about this and my answer i think i would say in my palm right Mm -hmm. because you know that way it's the, it most closely matches the metaphor of sort of me still having to give um, some sort of identification. I mean, you know, you think about holding your phone up to the uh, Apple Pay or swiping your credit card. It's, it's me reaching out and saying, all right, I, here is my card. Here, you can have it, right? Um, so I was, that's my thought is if it was in my palm or my hand or something, I, you could still like basically swipe your hand, right? <laughs> Yeah, it makes to sense. pay plus, or something plus you know? in your in your um in your palm you if you have like a fist you're closing your hand people yeah you might not be able to reveal it or something so yeah. opening up your hand might be a that's a could be a thing mm-hmm. yeah it could be a thing where maybe if you don't want someone you know if you know or i think it's like if it's in your shoulder or the top of your head or something whatever maybe just any random passing drone in the air could scan it or <laughs> sure, <laughs> seems yeah, exactly. more seems more uh scary or something um yeah, I guess but it depends yeah, what kind true. of chip it is. Uh, I mean, this question's pretty vague, but it's <laughs> a good answer. Um, do you have a business or technology leader that inspires you, that you follow? Uh, yeah, so I kind of took this as like uh, just from history, I guess. Um, you know, so maybe not follow per se. I mean, I, I think I have a lot of the standard answers there and stuff, you know. I mean, the Steve Jobs and the... Yeah, know, but so I guess everybody. in history it was it's even more interesting, actually. Yeah, so I've always I've always been kind of uh inspired or maybe not maybe not inspired but sort of amazed by howard hughes um you know because he just uh, you know i mean he, he came from a wealthy family so i mean you know he already he already had kind of a leg up but um because his family manufactured oil mining uh, oil drilling tools rather oil bits basically um but you know he had these passions and he just laid everything on the line like he mortgaged his family business so many times over 
everyone thought he was nuts. All his advice, he drove him crazy. Like, I mean, his advisors, his family, you know, everybody, they're like, you're destroying everything your parents built. He didn't care, right? To build wooden airplanes, giant wooden <laughs> airplanes, and to make these crazy air movies and stuff. And uh, and here was this guy that, you know, I mean, he was not, you know, we, we have, um, I think in our society, like we want to do this whole like personality worship thing, right? You know, he was not a perfect person. He was he had a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. He, he had a lot of problems. But I think just... Um, you know, there's that movie, The Aviator, and 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 I've, I read a biography about him recently, and just like the the passion that he had for his his interests and and um, the links that he would go to, you know, like when it's we're out of money, fine, mortgage everything, I don't care, you know, do it all, and and like his obsession with perfection, uh, you know, like he would, uh, and it shows this in the movie The Aviator, you know, when he would feel over the body of the plane and it wasn't smooth enough and he kept, I mean, that's real. Like he's like, you know, the engineers were going crazy because like it's not possible to make this any smoother, you know, and he just would tear it all about, throw it out, start over, you know. Um, and and I think you see, I think a lot of like our modern heroes, we saw and we've seen have some of that, like Steve Jobs, you know, like when, what was it? A few weeks before the iPhone came out, he didn't like the plastic screen. No, take it back, make it out of glass. You know, um, so I, I I don't know. I think that passion and dedication is always something I um, I'm kind of inspired by. Yeah, no, I th- he was definitely an eccentric guy, and I think he's accomplished so much. It's really interesting. It's a good answer. No one said that he Howard Hughes before. You know, it's kind of like how how far can you take the passion for your business and for the quality of your work well you can take it to Howard Hughes levels if you want like <laughs> until you're there you're not, you're not perfect right <laughs> you <know>? yeah <laughs> so I'm pretty much wrapping up here but I'd kind of like to know like during your free time what do you do like, I know right now that there's you know a limit of what on what <laughs> you can do because of a everyone's inside well I mean so I have three kids that are that are you know between ages five and 13 uh, so I mean most of my free time if you want to call it that, is <laughs> is uh, spent doing stuff with them, you know. So I'm very active, uh, and again, this is this is perhaps all bets are off during this time because I don't know that any of this stuff is going to happen uh, in our sort of era of coronavirus here. But uh, normally, in normal summers, we would be gear- gearing up right now for swim team and swim meets. So I'm an I'm an official, and so I referee and officially officiate meets and stuff. Um, you know, judge strokes and, and swimming technique and all that sort of stuff, which, which is really great. It, it's, it's something that it's probably like our family's favorite thing to do. Cause all my, all three of my kids are on the swim team. Um, and they basically, well? yeah, I, I swam, uh, from about third grade to junior year of high school. Um, and it's funny cause you know, my wife was not a swimmer, but, and initially when we wanted to put my oldest son on the team, she's sort of like, really, like we really want to, this is a big commitment practices and meets twice. We have twice a week meets, you know, but she'll tell you now, like it was just such a great thing. Cause just the confidence that you gave the kids and just, you know, twice a week, just the community that we all, all get together. Um, but I take it pretty seriously. Um, you know, I mean, outside of that, uh, pretty in normal times, pretty active with boy Scouts for my son. My oldest son is in boy Scouts. My youngest is, uh, probably, I mean, maybe theoretically about to start Cub Scouts. Who knows if, if depending on what the school year looks like. Um, so, you know, I've been, a, have been a leader in those packs and organizations before, um, you know, and, and when I get time, I, I'm enjoy the outdoors, backpacking, rock climbing, stuff like that. Um, uh, nice. my climbing, my climbing buddy and I try at least once a year to do a big trip. Um, we, we can't go every weekend you know, it's pretty hard to go climbing every weekend like I used to, but we're kind of like, you know, if we can hop on a plane and go to Canada for one weekend a year or long weekend, that's, that's pretty good. So what's the biggest, um, biggest uh, mountain you climbed? Um, probably up in British Columbia. That was our last big trip. Um, there is a mountain up there called Yak Peak, Mm -hmm. which is this giant granite point basically. And, uh, I think the the route we did up it is like fourteen pitches. Each pitch is uh, roughly two hundred feet, something like that. Um, so we got up to like maybe we probably got up about two thirds of the way, I guess, before the bad weather came in. So we were up a couple thousand feet, um, enough that 
rappelling down it was like really we're still rappelling like we're not over <laughs> like how long are we got to do this for it was like hours of rappelling you know so um so that's you know I, I don't know if that would qualify as a big wall climb but it, it, it what you call a big wall climb like yosemite and stuff but it um we kind of think of it as like alp, alpine climbing so nice. yeah well, that sounds exciting um is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? I really do appreciate your time. Sam, this was really interesting. And I think uh, hopefully the audience, you know, enjoys it as well. Um, so thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I would just say, uh, you know, I'm happy to brainstorm any kind of blockchain ideas. Uh, or if folks are out there trying to figure out how to work it into their business, um, if they've got ideas, uh, you know, uh, I've had people that I've talked to about want to work out, you know, uh, token-based solutions to to pay for their business or pay for their services and you know all kinds of stuff um but happy to explore that if, if people have questions or are interest and and always uh i'm always up for a conversation yeah and also check out sam's podcast too unstoppable talk so yeah thanks thank you, sam. yeah absolutely hey y'all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.